you very much for taking this interview. Um, let's start off. What are your top three priorities for the city as mayor? Well, Simone, uh, it's great to see you here as well. And uh, it's obviously a straightforward question. You have one year in post. And so what are my three top things? Well, I think the first thing I'm trying to achieve is positioning London just a little bit more as a solution center to some of the world's problems. That's kind of the, uh, the first thing. The second thing, and this is a task that any Lord Mayor faces, is increasing the number of connections that we have. Uh, and that's, thus my theme is very much connected to Prosper, really trying to celebrate the many knowledge miles uh, of the city. And the last thing I, I'm trying to do is to demonstrate that London is a place uh, where things are happening. Um, I think that uh, events over the last few years may have overshadowed the excellent activity that's going on. And I think with some of the calming down and the better marketing, this is a really good opportunity to show what's going on in London. Excellent. Now, one of our questions, I think probably the last one I put on here, was about um, Connect and Prosper. So maybe let's let's, um, go to that one. Could you talk a little bit more about Connect and Prosper? Certainly. Uh, The full title uh, that I use when I I speak is I say that we here in the City of London represent the world's oldest continuous democratic workers and residents cooperative uh, dating back to the middle of the 7th century. So we're nearly 1,400 years old. And in the course of that, this community uh, has very much been at the center of events around the world, uh, whether it's been the formation of the concepts of science in the 15th and 16th centuries, whether it was the Industrial Revolution, uh, but whatever it's been, it's always been about trade. And trade is, to me, uh, absolutely fundamental to the city. But it's trade in the widest sense of the word. In fact, sometimes I prefer the term commerce. Uh, We have commerce of all forms, intellectual commerce and discourse, social commerce and discourse. And so it's all about the connection. So the full phrase is connect to prosper, celebrating the, the many knowledge miles of our square mile, which I also then colloquially call the world's coffee house. Mm. Um, so the knowledge miles are within our square mile. We have got, obviously, uh, finance in the form of banking and insurance. We obviously have supporting services such as actuarial, accountancy, and legal. Uh, but we also have as many scientists, engineers, and technicians as we have people working in uh, finance and professional services. And we also have a thriving uh, media sector, art sector, cultural sector. And all of these multidisciplinary talents, the many knowledge miles, are there to help the world solve problems. Uh, Talking of science, uh, you are yourself a scientist by background, are you not? Can you talk about how your science background and your accounting background, your financial background can be brought to bear in your uh, role here as mayor? Certainly. Uh, Well, my career has been a bit of a pachinko kind of game of bouncing back and forth between effectively science, engineering and technology and uh, economics and finance. Uh, My original degree uh, was in government, but it came with a huge scientific basis. And I continued to do maths and engineering and uh, computing at Trinity College Dublin. And actually, my uh, final uh, doctorate uh, was in uh, in statistics and mathematics. And along the way, I've acquired computing qualifications, uh, accounting qualifications, uh, securities trading qualifications, etc. So I I sit, I think, firmly between uh, both areas and enjoy it. And if you look at our 615,000 strong workforce in the city of London, 
approximately just over 200,000, a third of the city work in, in finance and professional services. About a third, uh, 8,000 of our 24,000 businesses are science, engineering, and technology businesses. Mm-hmm. And then we have another third, uh, which, which is a rich mix of small businesses as well. And I think that what I bring to this post for this year is an, a, a wider awareness of the breadth of our offering. Uh, and therefore, I guess you might call me a bit uh, sh- shallow but wide as opposed to yeah. deep but narrow, or to use Isaiah Berlin, the, the concept of the hedgehog versus the fox. I'm much more on the fox side. I know a little bit about a lot of things rather than a lot about one. Oh, but that sort of goes back, doesn't it, to what you were saying about that coffee house, London's hmm. coffee house. You think about the original coffee houses of the sort of 16th, 17th century where trade and science and knowledge met and obviously we'd like to think the FT is the, uh, is the paper du jour of, of the coffee houses. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how you can sort of bring all this knowledge to bear to sort of promote London uh, you know, internationally as this centre of excellence? Mm-hmm. Well you're right to focus on, on the coffee houses and yes uh, the FT particularly in its beautiful colours would be the, the newspaper of choice um, it, it is important, I think, to just remember how deep that tradition was. Uh, we had uh, the, the first coffee house in the 1630s was the Pasca de Rosa, which is today the Jamaica Inn pub about 100, 120 yards from here. Um, we then had Jonathan's, the coffee house, from which the London Stock Exchange emerged. We had the Virginia and Baltic, which, uh, from which the Baltic Exchange emerged. And, of course, quite famously, we had Lloyd's, which uh, kept the name and, uh, and emerged from that as well. Um, interestingly, uh, many of our publications emerged from them. That also, The Spectator and Tatler, also came out of coffee houses. So it's been a very rich tradition, often, I think, sort of overlooked as a period in history. Uh, in truth, they were called at the time penny universities. Mm. Uh, and you went into them and you spent a penny, uh, not the way we mean today. That <laughs> um, you went in and you spent a penny and you got sort of unlimited coffee. But people saw them as universities because unlike sort of the inebriation of the pub, you were there discoursing with people who were uh, fervently excited about what they were, what, what, what they were talking about. And even societies that existed, the Royal Society, for example, um, had a coffee house called the Grecian, uh, to which it would go. So uh, coffee houses and learned societies uh, are all intertwined. And that legacy is still here today. Uh, Within two miles of where we're sitting at Mansion House, we have 40 learned societies, 70 institutions of higher education, and 130 research institutes. Um, so I'm not going out to Oxford or Cambridge uh, with respect. I'm not even going out to Egham, to the Royal Holloway. It's all located very tightly here and has been uh, really for five centuries. So I believe coffee houses are a very good metaphor. Now, uh, I'm clearly not talking about you know Starbucks or Cafe Nero uh, as being the equivalent, although they, they do to some degree function still in that regard. But I think London has become the world's coffee house. And at the end of the year, I would love people uh, in any area coming up with an idea and saying this is an idea of global importance where should we bring it first to be discussed look at each other and kind of in a Homer Simpson way go duh obviously uh, we would go to London that's quite an interesting um, point you make because London 
in the sort of recent years has seen a dearth of IPOs, or and not as many IPOs. We've even seen some delistings. Um, we've sort of fallen from fourth position in, in terms of, sort of GDP to, to sixth, the sixth largest economy. Um, I mean, we're still up there, but London seems to have lost some of its shine. What do you think it needs to do on a non-political level? Um, what do you think London needs to do to kind of regain that shine? Mm. I'm not sure it has lost the shine, to, to be candid. Um, I, th- I think people do focus on the IPOs and the stock exchange uh, overly much. I mean, it makes great news because there's a number that changes every day, and it's gone up and it's gone down. Um, but when you examine the explanations, you know, it's gone up because investor sentiment is whatever somebody wants to attribute to it, or it's gone down because investors are worried. In truth, it bounces around all, all the time. And equities are just one small part of our markets. And traded equities, an even smaller part of that, as, as, as is shown. So you've got equities, you've then got debt in the bond markets, which don't typically get talked about very, very much. Uh, and then you move on to areas like insurance, which I, I think is almost completely overlooked. Um, so you know, in the vast scheme of things, it would be wonderful to have the, the finest stock market in the world, um, and we're working on it. But that's a longer, more interesting debate, which uh, takes into account the preeminence of a very limited number of U.S. tech stocks and things like that. On the wider front, uh, on our shine, the one thing I've picked up already in my travels, uh, and I've been to uh, the United Arab Emirates, Switzerland, New York, and Ireland already uh, in my first two months, uh, is we have actually grown assets under management. Um, And so we, uh, here in London, count for approximately 15% of the assets under management globally, and that's off of 1% of the population. Uh, We're the second largest center for assets under management. And the, the largest center would be the U.S., but a lot of that assets under management is, again, domestic. So when you begin to look at the international uh, disciplines that we're deploying, I think that's important to recognize the strength of London. So when we say people aren't bringing ideas to London, in fact, they're coming here for ideas. They're saying, can you help us invest around the world? And I've picked this up from French, German, Swiss, uh, Middle Eastern, Chinese, Americans, all coming here with their money and saying, we want the expertise that London provides globally, which we can't get in any other place in the world. Now, you've talked about the expertise of London, and we've seen in recent years, particularly in terms of tech, meditech or biotech uh, and AI, a growth of small entrepreneurial companies centering around London and in Greater London to try and boost British enterprise. How can you, in your role, help to encourage these entrepreneurs or to perhaps help give, make London a better stage for them to showcase their their wares, as it were? Yes. Um, London has actually always been an SME centre. Well, strictly the city of London has certainly always been an SME centre. And I do spend some time reminding uh, my fellow aldermen and others that if you went back 40 years ago, many of the big names hadn't even started up here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, where, where was Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, HSBC? They were not anywhere near the scale, perhaps a branch office or two, mm-hmm. um, but they flourished as our financial sector flourished and they grew with it. Uh, we've also always been home for... SMEs in science, engineering, tech, and life sciences. So there's actually nothing new. Um, 
but I think the, the recognition that the boundaries need to be lessened between finance, science, engineering, and tech to solve global solutions is, is important. So that brings us back to the multidisciplinary aspects. What can I do to help? Well, the mayor's office is one ultimately of convening people and making connections. So I've launched a few things. Um, firstly, uh, we have a set of Knowledge Mile lectures online. Mm. These are getting to be, uh, we're going to hit well over 100 lectures showcasing exactly uh, what you were talking about, putting on the stage these smaller businesses and larger businesses who've got ideas. And it's across a whole range of topics. Um, we do feature uh, life sciences, chemistry, uh, quantum fusion. There's a whole bunch of that. But we also talk about the rule of law. We throw in a bit of history because I think everybody who loves London loves a bit of history. Yeah. Um, so it's a very, very rich series online. The second thing we're trying to do is to help all businesses, but again, especially SMEs, make connections. And we're doing that through what, what I've termed coffee colloquies. Mm. These are 25 events here at Mansion House. <clears throat> and they consist of people uh, coming in, 10 presentations of four minutes each, 45 minutes discussion with the audience, 30 minutes of networking, and under two hours, please, now you can leave the house. <clears throat> and the idea is that these SMEs are seeing the breadth of what's available and making those connections. We're doing this on 17, uh, well, on the 17 sustainable development goals that the UN put, put forward. And I look at that as if you've ever sold in professional services, the one thing your sales trainer will tell you is get the client to express their problem. And if you can solve it, then you've got the sale. Mm. And so it, I believe as modestly our client is, well, um, the world. <laughs> and the world sat down 10 years ago and said, these are the 17 sustainable development goals. These are our problems. And so we should have something to say on them. So we have 17 of those. And then we have another eight topics. And I'll be frank, those are kind of of my own choosing. Um, so things like philanthropy, um, space debris, uh, quantum computing. I've added a few that I, I would like to discuss. So those are the two connectivity elements of it. And then we have a whole bunch of things trying to showcase London. Um, I have uh, effectively six initiatives underway, mm. ranging from <clears throat> mental health um, through uh, ethical AI onto constructing science, uh, which is looking at converting offices to laboratories. Uh, we have a project on smart economy networks. Uh, we have another project on um, green finance. And so these projects are, are meant to showcase uh, what London can do against major problem areas. And finally, finally, and a little bit of fun, we're having a number of experiments. <laughs> uh, hopefully you saw uh, on the staircase coming up, we have an atomic clock at Mansion House for the first time. And that's because uh, working with the National Physical Laboratory, we recreated Einstein's two-clock time dilation experiment wow. in 22 Bishop's Gate, which is our largest skyscraper here in the city. We're having uh, two days at the monument, um, one on aerodynamic uh, studies and one on uh, the speed of light experiments. There are many ways of calculating the speed of light that we want to demonstrate. Uh, we're having an experiment on counting microplastics around the British coast. Yes, I saw the lecture. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, uh, with, wet, with, with wet wheels, so that, that's quite a big one. Um, we, there's talk of two other experiments. One is a 
an autonomous boat trial on the Thames using a, a boat from Northern Ireland developed by Artemis, which will be an EV electrical vehicle, but we hope in future it might even be hydrogen. Mm -hmm. And Rotary International are discussing with us a seagrass experiment in the Thames for uh, sequestration of uh, carbon. And we finally, um, we're going to have a big pollinator count in the city. The, um, po uh, there are many pollinators other than bees. In fact, we have two beehives here at the top of Mansion House. And when I was in my teens, uh, my father and I used to keep about 300 hives, which is a, an outrageous number if you know what beehives are like. Yes. Um, but there are more pollinators than bees. And cities are effectively deserts to bees and other pollinators. There's just nothing to get. So pollinating London together, which is an initiative of which I'm patron, um, has been creating bee corridors north, south, east, west here in the city, you know, window boxes and gardens and rooftops. And we're going to go out and see uh, what's been happening. We've done two counts, uh, one in uh, 2022, one in 2023. But the 2024 one, we hope to make it kind of a public event uh, with a bit of crowdsourcing of counting. Good. In that case, I'll bring along all my wildflower and wallflower oh, seeds and start dropping them everywhere. Please do, please do. Um, one of the things you sort of, sort of uh, made me think, you've always been so good at bringing people together, your, your communication skills, having these lectures online, doing these webinars. Um, how important do you feel the mayor's role is as a communicator, not just between businesses, but also between London, the city of London, and the public? Mm-hmm. Mm. I've always looked at um, the city and the role of Lord Mayor or an alderman or a councillor or just anybody in public service as really three things. Commerce, community, and charity. Those are my three C's. Um, in commerce, well, if you aren't working at creating wealth, you don't want to have any wealth to spread. So um, I believe fervently in trying to create wealth. A lot of that wealth uh, relies effectively on connections. Uh, if you look at the growth in living standards from, say, 1970 to 2020, um, approximately two-thirds of that improvement, and we have seen major improvements, billions of people lifted out of poverty, has been due to increased trade. Trade in 1970 was about 27% of GDP, and in 2020 it was 60% of global GDP. And people overlook that. Um, in fact, there's a bit of a backlash now that anything that was shipped to you must have caused uh, more carbon to be produced. Well, there clearly was carbon used in, in shipping it to you, but the net effect is often surprising uh, that you should actually be importing or exchanging more things with other people. Uh, the other third uh, of the improvement is reasonably uh, down to technology. And so those are two areas I love as a former master of the world traders. I'm clearly into trade and clearly as a technologist into technology. And I see those as helping uh, improve the world. The second area is community. And uh, as Lord Mayor, uh, we, uh, you, you immediately kind of uh, gain a 50,000 strong fan movement called the livery. Our 100, 111 livery companies. Uh, you also take on uh, the patronage of about um, 85 organizations ranging from being rector of city university through through the year uh, to things to do with the RNLI, et cetera. So there's a lot, a lot that goes on there. And clearly your job is to bind those communities together. Uh, so it's about creating wealth, uh, but it's then 
looking at how you use that wealth to improve the community. And there are typically two areas. One is the business environment, and the other is the public realm. Uh, and in fact, just the other night, I hosted a dinner about how do we preserve our heritage buildings. So we're, we're just as interested in the public realm as we are in financial services or AI regulation or something. But the last bit, of course, is sharing that prosperity. And that's, I, I think, very much where charity comes in. Uh, the corporation has been doing a lot uh, over centuries, uh, particularly with uh, what, we, what you call the adjoining boroughs. So Islington, Camden, Lambeth, uh, Tower Hamlets. Uh, and I am sometimes taken aback at how enduring uh, some of those poverty and, uh, levels are and some of those problem levels. Arguably, too, though, those are sort of the immigrant communities. And one of the things that we have been supporting here in the city is the Migration Museum, which has plans to migrate uh, from Lewisham uh, to near Fenchurch Street. Uh, and we support that story because that's the story of trade uh, amongst peoples back, back to commerce. Now, within all of that, your question was directed at uh, the fourth C, which is communication. Um, and whilst uh, Lord Mayors can do their best, I think we can all learn how to be better communicators. So I am trying my best. But it is important to tell those stories around commerce, community, and charity, and try and bind the city together in common purpose. Now, talking about binding the city together, we wear that sort of just over the road you have the Bank of England, and then sort of sitting behind that, um, a few miles away, you've got the PRA, you've got the FCA, uh, you've got all these regulators and regulations sort of sitting behind the city, and you've got politics and politicians. Um, in such a world where we are sort of governed by largely by policy and policy makers, we've got elections on the horizon, mm. we've got regulators and regulation trying to improve the UK post-Brexit, how does the position of Mayor of the City of London, uh, sorry, the, the London Mayor, your position, how does that actually fit into all this? How can you sort of rise above politics and regulation but still be a voice and a lobby? You know, I don't know if you do lobby, but how do you sort of help London PLC in the light of sort of politics and regulation? Mm. I'm trying to tread carefully around that there because I know you can't get involved with politics and regulation, but yeah. you're still a voice. <coughs> Well, um, Lord, Lord Mayor is, uh, is the head of the City of London Corporation for a year, mm -hmm. and the City of London Corporation does get involved in, in politics and regulation uh, and has for a very long time. Uh, we, we do lobby uh, in the widest sense of the word. Are, you know, are we a formal lobbying group? No, but you know, at the basis of everything, we're particularly looking at ensuring that uh, the city thrives and that therefore London thrives, and we believe over many centuries that that's based as much as possible on open access and trade. So we, we do have a, a position. When it comes to the uh, regulatory element, yes, we, we, we also do talk fairly directly to regulators on a variety of subjects, but largely reflecting what the business community is thinking as opposed to uh, you know, postulating what, what we would like. Yes. We do, in fact, maintain offices in Brussels, New York, uh, Mumbai, uh, Shanghai, and Beijing. Um, so we're, you know, we are active in the, the global engagement, and we have dinners here um, you know, with the, the regulators and, and uh, the governor of the Bank of England and others. So we're very, very involved in that. Um, when it comes to um, our, our relationships with people, though, the, the point is we've been here for centuries and we intend to be here for centuries more. 
we're representing this uh, workers and residents cooperative, as I termed it, and we will talk to anybody. Um, and sometimes that gets us on hot water um, because, you know, why are you talking to them? You should be talking to us. We're like, no, we'll talk to both sides or, mm. or three sides or four sides. It's not always a, a dual thing. It's the same thing internationally. We're, we're open to engagement and dialogue. Does that mean that we necessarily agree with other people? No, but uh, I believe in dialogue first. In fact, I'm having an event uh, later this year. We're, we're going to try and learn from the faith community and it's, the title of the event is uh, Disagreeing Agreeably. Hmm. How do you get people in a room and learn how to converse with them, even though you're really never going to move their standpoint to be yours? You're, you're not going to convert them uh, from their religion to yours or their way of thinking about, say, trade or technology to yours. But how do you talk and discourse? Um, in the midst of all of that, uh, and I know this may seem a bit long-winded, um, for me, the most important thing in in the way that we deal with people is that we promote open, transparent, honest international standards wherever possible. I've long said the secret to a global financial center is treating all comers fairly. Mm. If you can't do that, and that, that pulls you in areas like the rule of law, mm. if you can't treat all comers fairly, then you really won't be successful. And London has done that for centuries. Mm. Um, and that treating all comers fairly is important. So if you look at, for example, the AI initiative that I started 12 weeks ago, it's based on using uh, the ISO standards that already exist on AI, not creating a new set of principles, but these are 20-year-old standards that people can be trained in. So I, I believe that's sort of more of our approach rather than getting involved in uh, national boundaries wherever possible. Sure. What are the sort of the challenges facing the city as we enter the fifth industrial estate of technology and cyber? Well, the challenges facing the city, uh, particularly with regard to new technology, are, well, first of all, understanding it. Um, and I think we've seen this on AI. Um, it's a particularly interesting bit at Davos. You, you couldn't escape AI, AI, AI. It was getting a bit dull and boring. And further, uh, many people up there pontificating really didn't know what they were talking about. Uh, I think one of the more interesting examples was a number of you know, senior people from very large multinational organizations saying that now that AI was out, they were thinking about using it and they, they were really looking at it. And I, I was like, well, you really probably don't understand how your existing systems work today. Mm. You've been probably using AI for nearly 20, 25 years. So it, it, it is a bit weird. So understanding is the first thing. Um, people do talk about education, and education is crucial, and the Knowledge Mile lecture series and other events are trying to help with that. But in truth, uh, technology needs to be played with. So your first decision is, are you going to let it out of the bottle? But once it's out of the bottle, then you probably ought to start playing with it and experimenting. There's so many examples of technology over the years that came out to do one thing, and people were absolutely sure it would do something uh, that was important. It turns out it either didn't reach its potential or it reached its potential in a, in a completely different area. Um, so we, you know, we've got all sorts of examples, uh, ranging from the very origins of semiconductors uh, through to graphene today and onwards, where what people thought it was going to do is not really what it wound up doing. And the only way you're going to find out what that is is to play with it. Yeah. Do, you think, do you think people are a little bit concerned about playing with technology because we have such tight regulations? Mm. People don't want to be the ones to stick their heads above the parapet. I think when it comes to new technology, it's, it's not about playing with the regulations. I think there's a, almost a, the, 
uh, there's that truism that there are two types of people in the world, <laughs> you know, and uh, the, the one I loved was that, you know, there are ten types of people in the world, uh, those that understand binary and those that don't. So, <laughs> um, so uh, it's an interesting problem as to that, but certainly we, we've seen there's a bit of a divide, uh, particularly, I, I would say, between Europe and America culturally. Uh, Europe's the home of what we would term the precautionary principle, which sort of says don't do anything until you're absolutely, absolutely sure it can't do any harm. And America tends to be a bit more adventurous and you know just try things out and see where they go. Um, the truth is neither side is right. Um, but if you want an absolutely zero risk environment, then you will never adopt new technology. Mm-hmm. And going back, and you would never trade with somebody you didn't know. You would never use a product you'd not seen before. And going back to my earlier point about 60% of improvements being trade and 30% being technology over the last half century, dangers of social media or something, but in fact all of science relies on honest statements of what's going on and the ability to test those statements. Yeah, so, you know, and so maybe we should be drinking more in Vinum Veritas, uh, <laughs> so who knows. Well, yes, uh, the truth the truth definitely is, is spoken over a glass of wine. Um, and I, I think that kind of honesty and integrity, um, I think because regulation, particularly financial regulation, has moved into a not quite transactional, it, but, but it, it's very strict and it's very stern. We can't necessarily just have a... Uh, you can't just build it on trust. Yeah. You know, it's almost like the regulator enforcing the good behaviour that we should automatically all be doing anyway. Yes, and this is a this is a richer topic, uh, uh, sort of in vino veritas, but in community in community veritas. Um, I um, I have for many years, nearly twenty years, uh, sat on the board of the United Kingdom Accreditation Service. We are arguably the unseen regulator. We regulate uh, 800 certification agencies and approximately 3,500 laboratories uh, in the UK. And we're part of a system of accreditation and certification globally. So this is what brings out your CE mark. This is what brings out your ISO standards. This is what tells you the aircraft you got into was made properly. This is what uh, puts a ship registry out. And I notice we, we spend a lot of time, and I, I think you would as the FT, on financial services regulation. But if you look at how the wider economy is regulated, it's regulated in a very different way. And these are community standards markets. So you have to get the kite mark to do certain types of things. You have to get the certification to do certain types of things. Nobody quite forces you in many cases. A regulator might say, we would insist that you have it or that we will consider you to be lower risk if you have it. So you've got this sort of, but see, that's a community basis. Uh, One of the things I think we lost when we uh, lost the self-regulatory organizations in the late 90s with the formation of the unitary regulator um, was, in fact, the community aspects of that. So when people felt that you were acting out of line in an SRO, they would bring you in and say, you're kind of violating community mores. And you'd say, well, strictly what I'm doing is legal. And we'd say, well, yeah, it might strictly be legal, but it's not actually good for the market as a whole. Yeah. And that market as a whole, to be honest, was not perfect. You know, We as the people selling probably wanted to have a little advantage over the customers or consumers, mm-hmm. but the customers and consumers wouldn't come to us if we were outright crooks. So there was a bit of balancing going on. Now it's much more, it was legal at the time. Yeah. 
Um, and I think we could point to examples. Uh, I would take, I would take uh, as an easy uh, target, but we could have a richer conversation, um, payment protection insurance. Mm. So technically it was legal at the time, and the, the banks involved didn't actually say, is this really going to be a good thing for the market? Uh, that had a terrible unwinding. Uh, I remember the numbers. I think it was about 1,200 pounds of British family. Mm -hmm. um, you know, these are some big things that go on when we look at: is it technically legal? Therefore, I'll do it. Uh, there was a law firm up in Newcastle. I remember they had T-shirts going, you know, if it's legal, we'll do it. And I thought that's a great joke. I, I get it, but I also thought it's kind of disturbing. Um, it, it shouldn't be: is it legal? I'll do it. It should be: is it, is it right? right? Yeah. yeah. And I believe that we need much more community discussion to achieve that uh, type of approach. And it, requir you know, it requires back to some honest dialogue amongst the community. It's like that sort of grey matters column in the old uh, CISI review. Yes. Yeah, very good one, just musing on, on what it is. And actually, in many ways, uh, speaking truth to power or you know, a bit of emperor's new clothes as well, kind yeah. of. You know, have you really looked at this and thought how, how this is happening? Yeah. So... Um who are your own inspirations, and what do you hope to inspire in others? <laughs> oh, gosh. I'm always bad on this question, because uh, I'm inspired by lots of people in different ways. And then, on the other hand, I'm also hypercritical. And, and of course, if you've ever read a biography of a hero, <laughs> um, it, it can often disappoint you. You know, what was it, Bertolt Brecht, you know, unhappy, the land that seeks heroes. Um, so, so there you go. Um, to be honest, uh, one of my great inspirations has always been, believe it or not, my scoutmaster. I, I became an Eagle Scout in America, and this uh, great guy, Bill Burhow, uh, had been a Marine, had fought through every single landing, I think, uh, in the Pacific, all the way through you know, Guadalcanal to Iwo Jima. Uh, lost a lung in the process. Uh, and was a, a real stickler for uh, precision, which I think at you know, the age of 12 I, I definitely needed. Um, and, and I admired him, and he was a great inspiration to me, always morally upright, always, uh, always caring for people, always trying to make sure people spoke with each other, and despite being a Marine, you know, always trying to reduce conflict, mm -hmm. and throughout all of it, uh, an enormous sense of humor. He really had a wicked sense of humor. So I, I think uh, Bill, Bill was an inspiration. Other than that, um, obviously, there's some very inspiring people, even in politics. I, I've got a few here. So I'll, I'll be quiet because there's an election looming. Mm -hmm. um, I'm always in admiration of great technologists. Uh, I'm particularly keen on, believe it or not, faith leaders. Um, I'm not religious myself, but you know, when you look at the stories behind Mahatma Gandhi and others, you, you, those are very, very inspirational. Um, and then I, I, I did spend quite a bit of time in the South uh, during the... Um, Troubles. My mother was, uh, uh, my mother is, uh, you know, quite committed uh, to 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 abolishing uh, racial problems. And you know, we were we were at the back of the buses. Um, mm. We were on the marches. So you know, my mother has always been an inspiration. I know that's what, what you know masculine men are supposed to say, but mom mom has been a huge inspiration in being morally upright and yet, you know, always trying to make people uh, work together. Well, those are fantastic, um, fantastic heroes to have. And I guess that's the kind of inspiration you hope to be. Perhaps. I, I hope, what I, if, if anything, I just hope that people understand that it, it's a bit, well, frankly, it's a bit like Dick Whittington. Uh, <laughs> if, if you want to come and make your fortune in London, 
particularly the city of London, the city is open to you if you're prepared to commit. Thank you so much. So oh, no, I'm thrilled to do this. You know that. Anything that gets a city message out, we like. Well, thank you very much.